Good morning, everyone. It is good to gather again. In the, well, I should say we've been here this morning. We're here now, and I'm looking forward to the fellowship meal afterward as well. I'd like to ask everyone to open their songbooks to Worthy of Worship number 23. begin in prayer, and then we have a few items as far as announcements go. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together. Oh, you are so good to us. You've made it possible that we can know you and enjoy you forever. Thank you that you are worthy of our worship, and I ask that as we pray right now, it would be an act of humility before you that we recognize your great worth beyond 
our ability to understand and come before you in reverence in a way that is pleasing in your sight. Father, I ask you that we would worship you throughout this hour in every aspect, in the singing as we just have done and as we pray together, as we open the scriptures, as we give, as we fellowship together now around your word, but also later around a meal. Father, you are so good to us, but mostly you've given us eternal blessings that anyone can make part of their lives through faith in Jesus Christ, who gave his life, shed his blood, was buried, and rose again for the forgiveness of their sins, for my sins, all of us. And I thank you, Father, that you've made it straightforward and simple that we must believe with all our heart in that that you've provided for us to have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. I ask you, Father, that if there's someone here today that hasn't done that yet, that they will make sure to care for that today before they even leave this building, if that is how you work. Father, I ask you, too, that those who are sick, including myself, would quickly recover. I think of some who aren't here that I have received communication from that are not feeling well. Lord, we ask that you would raise them up and lift them up. Heavenly Father, thank you also for your love for us. We love you also, Father God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'd like to suggest then we sing How Great Thou Art, number 28 in our songbooks. Take it in that on the cross 
my burden gladly bearing. He bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee. How great Thou art, how great Thou art. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee, how great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to Thee, how great Thou First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. See that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both among yourselves and to all men. Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We may be seated. Please open your songbooks to 589. Jesus is coming again. All of our songs today speak of that event. message we bring glorious carol we sing wonderful word of the king Jesus is coming again coming again coming again oh we be more Maybe soon, maybe evening, and maybe soon coming again, coming again. Oh, 
Jesus is coming again. Chaplain's church is dismissed as we are singing verses two and three. Forest and flower exclaim, mountain and meadow the same, all earth and heaven proclaim, Jesus is coming again. anyone here has a big diamond ring on or some other gem, have any of you been involved in faceting stones? Anybody? Okay, Chuck has. I'm not surprised, Chuck. Do you still have, do you still have your lap? No? Okay. A friend of mine down in Missoula, Pastor Gordon Dexter, does that. They sometimes will go out in the woods here in Montana or up on the mountainsides and find sapphires. And that's, that's a whole story in itself. I know Chuck and Chris have done that, but then he'll, he'll facet those stones. The second coming of Christ, we'll be looking at that in James chapter 5. James mentions it to us. It's just one of the facets on that wonderful gem, the coming of Christ. James presents a few ways we ought to be living in view of the second coming of Christ. Did you know that over 300 prophetic proclamations were fulfilled when Jesus came the first time when he was born in Bethlehem? Over 300. While the second coming of Christ far surpasses the number of his first coming in regard to prophecy in the Bible. From the Old Testament, almost every book of the Bible mentions the second coming of Jesus Christ. Some have estimated well into the above a thousand uh, times it's foretold throughout the Bible. James mentions it here in chapter 5. We'll be looking at that today 
it is one of those yet come yet future events that we all look forward to or we ought to and if you're not sure whether you can look forward to that you talk to me we'd like to make sure about that certainly let's go to james chapter 5 verse 1 and this one starts out with go to now judy hey go to now hey ye rich men weep and howl for your miseries that come shall come upon you your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire ye have heaped treasure together for the last days behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields which is of you kept back by fraud crieth and the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the handman, I'm sorry, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and the latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Heavenly Father, as we look into these verses together today, O oh, Father God, I ask you that we would learn how to live in light of the soon coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We realize that will be in two parts, according to 1 Thessalonians 4 and passages like this and others. We realize the Lord will come first just to the clouds, and those who have believed in Jesus Christ throughout the ages will be resurrected. Those who are living at the time who believe in Jesus Christ will be caught up together with the resurrected saints to meet the Lord in the air. But then seven years later or so, we realize our Savior is coming back to this earth, placing his feet on the ground and establishing his kingdom and bringing judgment and ruling this world in perfect harmony. Father, we look forward to those days. And yet we do ask you that today as we consider in the meantime, that we would learn from the pen of James, who you led, who you bore along to re record this portion of Scripture for us. May we honor you and love you and serve you in a way that is pleasing in your sight. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> in verses 1 through 3, James' words are harsh. Some may say unchristian-like. But remember, these words are inspired by God himself, who is the Lord of Sabaoth, verse 4. Sabaoth is a Greek word for armies or military, and as this phrase is used here, the armies of heaven, the heavenly hosts. So the Lord of hosts knows, as it says in verse 4, he knows everything about your daily business. It has all made it to his ears. 
the one who is the Lord of hosts. Oh, and how much he hears. I couldn't handle all that information, no, sir. I wouldn't want to handle all that information. By the way, I hear from people all the time about their daily affairs and business and more than I want to know. Maybe it's part of a pastor's calling or enabling by God. Whatever it is, people open up to Juanetta and me. And there are things we learn that we will never speak of. That information must go with us to our graves. I hope God uses us as people open up to us. Just imagine what God knows, though. He knows every single detail, every thought afar off. You can't imagine it, neither can I, because we're finite mortals. God alone is infinite and omniscient, and he knows it. Psalm 19, verse 6, tells us that there is nothing hid from God. He knows all. Not only does the Lord of hosts know everything, the Lord of Sabaoth here, but he also controls a day of reckoning and accounting. Jesus said in Mark chapter 4, verse 21, and he said unto them, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed and not to be set on a candlestick? For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested, neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. James addresses a problem among some of the brethren who were scattered abroad that he was writing to, namely their ill-gained wealth. Their ill-gained wealth. God knew about it, every detail of it. And he learned, James learned some of it, so he's addressing it. He describes these particular rich men as miserable, in verse 1, corrupted, in verse 2, cankered and rotten in verse 3. Now, that's not a very pretty picture. That's not flattering. By the way, riches are not the problem. The wealth is not the problem. The Bible does not discourage acquiring wealth. It doesn't discourage that. Both Old and New Testaments give good guidelines for ownership of personal property. They give us good guidelines for work ethics and for personal gain, and the use of those personal profits. Clearly, Abraham was a very, very wealthy man, and God used him greatly to be a blessing to many. You remember Job of the Old Testament? He was the wealthiest man in the East. And God said of him that he was perfect and upright and one who feared God and eschewed evil. Those are just two Examples of several that we would find in our Bibles. But what James was writing about was a different matter. These men were given a very harsh exhortation because of the way they got their wealth, the way they got it. First of all, holding back wages in verse 4. The way it worked back then is pretty clear. 
Matthew 20 tells us, each person is hired and was paid his day's wage at the end of the day. He may be hired again by mutual agreement, not a written contract, the following day as well, if they agreed, and paid at the end of that day. And so it went until the job was done. They got paid each day for that wage that was agreed upon. These men that James wrote about kept hiring different people each day until the job was done, never intending to pay them. That's what the context points out. The tense of the verb kept back indicates that the laborers never will get their salaries or their wages. Never will. Deuteronomy, of course, addresses this. Deuteronomy 24, verse 14. God says by the pen of Moses, Thou shalt not oppress an hired servant that is poor and needy, whether he be of thy brethren or of thy strangers that are in thy land within thy gates. At his day thou shalt give him his hire, neither shall the sun go down upon it, for he is poor and setteth his heart upon it, lest he cry against thee unto the Lord, and it be sin unto thee. The, what James was addressing, these formerly Jewish brethren should have known was wrong, it was sin, it was evil, and it was not blessed of God. So the first way that they got their wealth was holding back wages. The second way was controlling the courts. Verse 6 tells us, Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Why do I say controlling the courts? Go back in James to chapter 2, verse 6. James 2, verse 6. James is writing to these same individuals, but ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? When you couple that with chapter 5, verse 6, ye have condemned. It has to do with controlling the courts. And when those people that he hired and didn't pay his wages to took that before the magistrate. There was no justice for those laborers because these wealthy men bought off the court system. And God says through the pen of James, ye have condemned the just. The hired person was the just one, not the wealthy. The word killed in verse 6, should probably be taken in a figurative way, though it's possible that the rich men could so oppress the poor that some of the poor would die. By the way, the courts in James' day were apparently easy to control. If you had enough money, the poor workers could not afford expensive lawsuits. Does that sound familiar? It sure does, doesn't it? A cartoon I once read. One individual is asking the other, what is the golden rule? 
And the other character answers, whoever has the gold makes the rules. These workers who had been taken advantage of by the rich took their case to the Lord, the highest judge of all, and James recognizes that they will receive, of course, from the Lord that which is right, and so will the rich man who oppressed them receive from the Lord some judgment or consequence for that. Now, how did they use their wealth? Well, they stored it up in verse 3. Your gold and silver is cankered. Why? And the rest of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasure together for the last days. Does that sound familiar too? Sure it does. Jesus told a parable about that. The Apostle Paul wrote these words. For the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 14, speaking of saving an inheritance for them, that is okay. That is not what was going on here in James chapter 5, but it is wrong if you neglect to care for your family. In 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, the Bible says, but if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. It is also wrong to store up if you owe wages to those who have been hired. And that was the case here. They had gold and silver in verse 3. They had extra fancy clothing, as verse 2 tells us, and food stored up, but they were sinning. It was against God. Another way they used their wealth, they kept it back from others. We've seen some of that. Verse 4 says, kept back by fraud. Fraud was a civil and moral crime back then, and it is a civil and moral crime today as well. Fraud is. Fraud means by laying, lying, I'm sorry. Fraud means by lying or suppressing the truth, taking advantage by deceit or deception with the intent to injure someone else by taking gain. That is a definition of fraud. Jesus warned this in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And he said unto them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Then Jesus proceeded to tell of a rich man who had a bumper crop one year and decided to, instead of sharing the profit with those who worked for him, build bigger barns and store it up. Remember? But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall all those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The warning here is for all generations. It's for us as well as it was them. What would become of their riches that were taken wrongfully? Well, The pictures that James uses are pretty clear. They will vanish as clothing rots and moths eat it, verse 2, and as rust and corrosion destroy metal, verse 3. That's what will happen to their ill-gained wealth. And to be sure, James intended to imply that misused riches erode a person's character 
That's the bigger problem. Like moths eat fabric and like rust eats away metal. It erodes your character if you have ill-gained wealth. Like what he described here. And for those who misuse riches, there is a judgment from God to be sure. Jesus Christ will be the judge and his judgment will be perfect, righteous, and just at his second coming. Let's look at verse 9. Grudge not one against another, brethren. This is James 5, 9. Grudge not one against another, brethren. This is written to believers. Lest ye be condemned. That would be judged. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. At the second coming of Christ, these things will be made right. Throughout this passage, James believed that the Lord would return soon and bring swift righteous judgment upon the unbelief around them and the greed of the wealthy. Not only did James warn that the coming of the Lord draweth nigh in verse 8, but he also exhorted the brethren, those who believe in Christ, to be patient, verses 7 and 8. Did you catch that? The believers should be patient, waiting for that wonderful day that Jesus comes again, as we just sang about. Patient and patience in our New Testaments do not mean sitting around idly twiddling our thumbs. That's not what it means. <laughs> that would more appropriately be called laziness. That's not what patience means. Patience means a confident endurance. We can confidently endure even wrongdoing by others toward us, any of us, in light of the Lord coming to take care of it. We can confidently endure that stuff. We've been treated wrong, a lot of us in this room. Some, maybe more than others, but all of us have been treated wrong. Can we confidently, patiently endure waiting for the coming of the Lord? Yes, we can. That is a joyous occasion we often sing about, a confident endurance. So, now we see in verses 7, 8, and 9, how a Christian should live in light of the soon coming of the Lord. First of all, live with a confident endurance, dear friend. So many Christians have become discouraged because they are treated wrong at work or don't see the results they want in ministry or at home. Maybe they have been taken advantage of by, uh, by tyrants, as in this chapter, or even another person who claims to be a Christian. They have run out of their kind of, that kind of patience. They've run out. They've come to their end. But James exhorts us to live with a confident endurance in light of the Lord's righteous accounting when he comes back. And surely, he will come back. I suppose it's good for us not to know the day or the hour, isn't it? It might change the way we live. He wants us to live right now as if he was coming back next hour or this hour with a confident endurance waiting for that day. Connected to this thought, there were some and there are some today that are discouraged because though they may be enduring trials, have lost confidence in the Lord's return to make all things right. 
Yeah, maybe they're enduring and they're running out of strength that way because, well, it's been a long time and he hasn't come back yet. They may have some endurance, but they're no longer confident. They may even say things like, yeah, Christians have said for centuries now that Jesus would come soon, so where is he? See what Peter wrote. Let's go to first, Second Peter, I'm sorry. Let's go to Second Peter chapter 3, just a few pages toward the end of your Bible. Second Peter chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 11. This second epistle, beloved, now write I unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the latter last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness. Peter wrote it very clearly, didn't he? God calls those who cast doubt on the coming again of the Lord scoffers, in verse 3. And he even gives us an example of what they will say, in verse 4. Then he says they are willingly ignorant, in verse 5. Not all these things are the same from age to age. An example is that of Noah's flood in verses 5 and 6 that changed everything. It's not the same now as it was before the flood, certainly. With the Lord, dear Christian, it is not so much a matter of time, verse 8. We get stuck on time. But God is perfect in his timing. It must be obvious to the Bible student that God's timing for Christ's return is not for us to know, but that as long as it does take is an opportunity for many things. The lost to come to repentance and belief, verse 9. Praise the Lord for the window of opportunity that we now live in. 
We have loved ones and friends who need to know Jesus Christ as Savior so that they are taken to be with him for eternity, whether through death and resurrection or through the rapture. Praise the Lord for the window of opportunity that we now live in, that our family and friends may get saved. But do not question this fact. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come. Did you catch that? And his righteous judgment will be served at that time. So as James exhorts us, live with a confident endurance waiting for his coming until he comes. Jesus taught a parable about this in Luke chapter 19. If you want to go there, I'll give you just a moment. Luke chapter 19, verse 11. I'll read verses 11, 12, and 13. Luke 19, verse 11. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable, because he was nigh to Jerusalem, and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return and he called his ten servants and deli- delivered unto them, or delivered them ten pounds, and said unto them, Occupy till I come. This was a parable about Jesus' second coming, of course. We are to occupy until he comes. We're to be busy about the things that please God, confidently enduring hardships, waiting for his coming again. We need to be occupying, in other words, working, serving him, obeying him, loving him and sharing him with others. In this verse, James 5, 7, Be patient, therefore, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and, the, and latter rain. In this verse, the Lord gives an illustration through James' pen. If a man does not have a confident endurance, then he better not become a farmer. My dad used to farm barley in the Flathead Valley. Too much rain in the spring can cause the barley to grow up fast and tall. Might sound good, but it's not. Those stalks are weak. And any breeze may cause it to blow down. And I've seen whole fields that were blown down. If a farmer's barley blows down, the ears will touch the ground and will do one of two things. Either they'll mildew or they'll sprout. And either way, the crop is lost. Not enough rain and too much sun can burn it up. A hailstorm, I've... We have some friends over by Guildford, Montana, who have two farms, two brothers, share two farms, and they're almost 40,000 acres apiece. The northern farm, a few years ago, they lost all 40,000 acres to hail. The whole thing. That can beat it to a pulp. I've seen early snows, some of you have seen that, that come before harvest time that ruin a crop. It takes confident endurance and work to be a farmer, doesn't it? 
It sure does. Those men have learned maybe the hard way. Jewish farmers in the days of James would plow and sow the seed in what to us are autumn months. The early rain mentioned by James would soften the soil and prepare it for the seed to be planted and sprout. The latter rain would come in early spring to help the crop mature, like February or March, and bring plump grain to the heads. The farmer had to wait months and weeks before his crop was ready for harvest. That is why James called it the precious fruit of the earth. We take so, so much for granted when we just go to the store and buy something. It's precious, dear friend. I'm glad that many of you garden, but still we don't understand the process of really farming. It's precious. God has provided it for us, and it takes work. I'm sorry. Adam and Eve did that for us, you know, but it's the way it is. It's precious. Jesus used farming to teach about his coming. Did you know that? And the establishment of his kingdom. Here's Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 29. And he said, So is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground, and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up. He knoweth not how, for the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, First the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. He patiently waited, but he tended to it day and night. So the Christian must be patient, for the harvest is coming. The harvest is coming. Be patient. Galatians 6, 9 says, In due season we shall reap if we Faint not. Then James exhorts believers to establish your hearts, verse 8. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. In light of the Lord's soon coming, we are to establish our hearts. The word establish is the Greek word sterizo, and it literally means to turn resolutely in a certain direction, purposefully, resolutely, in a certain direction. We may understand this exhortation as a person who sets a worthy goal and starts in that direction until the goal is reached. No farmer ever had a crop, unless it was a crop of weeds, he never had a crop of produce without resolutely turning toward his field to care for it. Not being distracted by spending time out at the lake or pursuing some recreation, no farmer had a good crop unless he tended to that and unless he resolutely turned in that direction. But focusing on preparing his field at the right time of year, planting as soon as it was ready and caring for the crop until harvest, that is a dedication. And that's what James is talking about here to turn resolutely in that direction. A dedication. Be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. James tells us to establish our hearts 
turn resolutely in the direction that the soul of our heart is cared for without distractions and prepared for the Lord's return. In verse 9, James exhorts believers to grudge not one against another in light of the Lord's soon coming. The word grudge here is not, as we may think, like carrying a grudge or a chip on our shoulder. The idea here includes murmuring, groaning, and grumbling, and complaining. Do some Christians grumble and complain and murmur about each other or circumstances? You know, if we shoot each other down, the enemy doesn't have to do it. If we shoot ourselves, the devil doesn't have to. James says this is a serious matter. One, that the Lord Jesus will judge even us for somehow. There is a coming day. James believed it would be soon. And if it could be soon for him, wow, it's all the more obvious. It's sooner for us when the Lord will come. I believe the next event on God's prophetic calendar is the first part of Christ's coming to rapture the church, true believers, to be with him. Are you ready? Are you ready? Am I ready? Are you a true believer? That's what it takes to start being ready. We need to have a patient endurance or a confident endurance in the meantime if we're believers. By the way, if you're not sure that you're a believer in Christ, you make sure and talk to me today and we'll take care of that so that you'll be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. If you are a believer, don't be like those who treated others cruelly in James chapter 5. That's what this is. these verses are written about. And cheated them in any way. There will be righteous justice served by God at the second coming of Christ. In Matthew 25, I'll just read parts of this, starting at verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats, and he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, verse 41, it goes on, Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was and hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment. But the righteous 
into life eternal. We have a stewardship, friend, between now and the second coming of the Lord. We're to occupy till he comes. And here's an example of being right to each other, treating those who are oppressed in a right way, those who have needs, helping fill those needs. It doesn't buy us salvation, but it does give us a a glorious future when the Lord says to the righteousness, or to, I'm sorry, to those who are righteous, he'll say, enter thou into my rest. This that I've just read is a judgment that will take place at the end of the tribulation of seven years when the Lord comes back to establish his kingdom. Yet, it explains part of what James was writing about. Jesus is the perfect Righteous judge. For those who face some troubles now, many do. Be patient. Establish your hearts. Grudge not one against another in light of Christ's second coming. And he is coming soon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know the hearts. And you know if any have taken advantage of another. You know if any have treated others in a way that is not pleasing in your sight. Father God, I ask you that you would give us a patient endurance through these times and that we would not grudge against others, but Father, that we would occupy until our Savior comes again with a joy in our hearts and help anyone come to Christ that we meet and help with their personal daily needs as well. Father God, I thank you for our church family that often that is the case. And here we have an example from the pages of your Bible. I ask you, Father, that we would not take it for granted. The most important step in this direction is that someone be ready when the Lord does come, that everyone be ready when the Lord does come. And we know that it takes personal faith in Jesus Christ who died as a substitute for us as God, shedding his blood for the remission of our sins, that after his burial on the third day, he rose again victorious over the grave and death and through absolute sincere faith in him, our sins are forgiven. And we won't face the judgment as Jesus told about the sheep and the goats, where the goats were cast into everlasting fire. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we will be with our Lord and enter eternal life and rest. And I ask you, Heavenly Father, that if someone is not sure of that today, that they will make sure of that by talking with me or one of our other dear church family. Father, I ask you that you would be honored and glorified as we live and occupy till our Savior comes. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'd like to ask you to stand in closing. We will sing, maybe we'll just pick up verse 1 of chapter, I'm sorry, chapter, verse 1 of number 593. Jesus, will he, Jesus find us watching? Will Jesus find us watching? 593, let's just sing verse 1 and then, Sean, would you thank the Lord for the food in prayer? And then we're dismissed.
his servants, whether it be noon or night. Faithful to him will he find us watching with our lamps all trimmed and bright. Oh, can we say we are ready, brother, ready for the soul's bright home? Say, will he find you and me still watching, waiting, waiting when the Lord shall 